You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 44, part seven of the Gallipoli series. And on this episode, I'll get into the landings at Suvla Bay that took place in August of 1915, as well as a side story that relates to Gallipoli. So there's going to be two parts to this episode, but before I get into all that, let me go over some admin notes. Actually, I don't have any admin notes for this episode. Everything seems to be going smoothly on the podcast. So let me just ask you, how are you doing? Health is good, I hope. Like I said, there's going to be two parts to this episode. And when I first started writing, it was earlier in the month. And then I finished, started writing this episode um, on the 24th, four days ago. Today is February 28th. That's a Monday. So there's been a lot happening. And when I first started writing this episode, it was if Ukraine is going to get invaded by Russia. And then when I finished it, I said, uh, well, they've been invaded. So we now know. And it's the 28th. So... Man, just in the span of four days' time, it's just so much is happening. So I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm not even actually going to have a drink for this episode. Again, it's Monday. I normally don't drink Monday through Thursday. And honestly, I'm just not in the mood to have a drink right now. So I'm just having good old water like I usually do on a Monday night. And um, you know what? Let me just start recapping this episode so we can get this thing going. What do you say? On the last episode, I covered the 6th Battalion from the Australian Division launching their attack on a German officer's trench. They detonated three mines in hopes it would obliterate the enemy front lines. It didn't. In fact, all it did was piss off the Turks who responded with an artillery bombardment. Overall, the attack was a failure for the 6th Battalion. General Birdwood then adjusted the plan to focus on attacking Neck, Chessboard, Dead Man's Ridge, and Quinn's Post. The 3rd Light Horse Brigade was tasked with this. They were put in four waves. The first was completely shut down in in less than two minutes. After the first, the second wave jumped off, and it was just about the same story for them. And the third and fourth wave, same thing. The 8th Royal Welsh Fusilers were then ordered to attack Neck, and they too failed. It was one failed attack after another. The Gurkhas from the 29th Indian Brigade managed to take Hill Q, but walked into their own artillery bombardment coming from Navy ships. They eventually were forced back. On August 10th, around 2,000 soldiers made up of different units held Chinook Bear and Rhododendron Ridge for a short period of time before being overrun by Mustafa Kemal's reserves and were forced back. In the end, No gains were made by the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps during these attacks. This was another case of generals ordering the men into suicidal attacks. Not only were the Turkish trenches fortified, but they were swarming with reserves come to to this point. I also spoke about the medical care during this time and, and sanitation. Alec Riley, a British signaler, mentions on the afternoon of August 7th, how bad the conditions were getting. He said the following. It was Saturday afternoon. The trenches were crowded with dirty, ragged, worn-out officers and men. They sprawled everywhere, many of them asleep, and we trod carefully so as not to disturb them. 
It is impossible to describe how these men were living. Tall men slouched, thin, round-shouldered, bandaged, over their septic sores, dirty, unshaved, unwashed. Men were living like swine, or worse than swine. About these crowded trenches, there hung the smells of latrines and the dead. Flies and lice tormented men who had hardly enough strength left to scratch or fan the flies off for a few seconds. The August sun scorched us, for there was no shade. No photograph could show the misery of those trenches that Saturday afternoon. Dressing stations were busy with lint and iodine, helping the innumerable septic cases to hold out a bit longer, for it could not be cured on Gallipoli. And this will take us into the heart of this episode. Before I get into the Suvla landings, let me first take that sidetrack onto a story that's related to Gallipoli. I want to give you some quick history about a special Anzac soldier, one of the deadliest snipers of the Great War, who engaged in one of the greatest sniper duels of all time. His name was William Edward Singh, better known as Billy Singh. Born in 1886 to a Chinese father and an English mother, and why am I bringing that up? Well, because in 1886, being mixed race, it's actually it actually mattered, and not in a good way. His father was a drover from Shanghai, and his mother was a nurse from Staffordshire, England. A drover is an Australian term for one who moves livestock. Billy grew up as a farm boy in rural Queensland with his parents and two older sisters. His family was poor. Times were hard for them. This meant Billy had to work at a young age to help make ends meet for the family. Interracial marriages during this time were uncommon, and in some areas it was even illegal. Billy experienced a lot of racial prejudice growing up. Before the war broke out, Billy had several jobs doing hard labor, a cane cutter being one of them. Even though he experienced anti-Chinese racism and living in poor conditions, this didn't stop him from living his life. Billy had a passion for horses and shooting. He became good at both. In fact, he turned into a very good competitive shooter at this time. When the Great War broke out, he was among the first to enlist in the army. I don't know if I want to call it lucky, but if he would have waited instead of immediately enlisting, he might not have made it into the army. Australia would prevent any non-white Australians from joining the army during its recruitment process for the war, which is crazy on many levels. But the one that really doesn't make sense is to me is the British had territorial soldiers fighting in the war. Actually, there were Aboriginal soldiers, so even though Australia had this quote ridiculous rule, non-whites were somehow getting through. People people could have bribed their way in. I have to tell you a story. In the military, I had to get a flight physical, and with a flight physical, they have to check your rectum. <laughs> I gave my battalion medic a twelve pack of good beer. Not to jam his meaty finger in me. Judge me all you want. Go ahead, judge away. But I was a young man. I wouldn't have recovered from that trauma. He was a big guy. He played as a lineman for West Point. I mean, come on, that's too much for a young man. Sorry, I just, 
I don't know why I thought about that, but I, I did. All right. Singh was accepted into the 5th Light Horse Regiment, which was part of the 2nd Light Horse Brigade. They were shipped out and made it to Egypt by February of 1915, eventually making it to Gallipoli in May after the heavy losses suffered during the landings on the 25th of April. As I said a moment ago, Billy could shoot. He had impeccable accuracy with the Lee Enfield 303. This led him to getting assigned as a sniper, and his grounds for stalking his prey was at a place in Anzac called Chatham's Post. I've looked on a few maps, and I can't exactly pinpoint Chatham's Post, but I believe it's in the vicinity of Lone Pine. None of my maps seem to have it, and I can't locate one showing it, but historians have noted him being around Lone Pine. Billy was causing havoc on the Turks, and it didn't take long before all the killings gained him popularity. The Anzac soldiers labeled him as the Angel of Death. They knew who Billy Singh was. Billy was given two nicknames by his squadron, the Assassin and the Murderer, because of his ruthless demeanor. But with fame, this will often bring in unwanted attention. His popularity drew him into one of the greatest sniper duels in history. Great duels have been fought throughout history. Duels such as Alexander Hamilton vs. Aaron Burr, Miyamoto Musashi vs. Sasaki Kijiro, Andrew Jackson vs. Charles Dickinson, and many more. And although this sniper duel may not be in the history books as one of the greatest, aside from Musashi vs. Kojiro, which was probably the best duel in human history, this one should be held higher in ranking than many that are mentioned as the greatest. An equally deadly sniper was sent to hunt Singh. His name was Abdul the Terrible. Abdul was the pride of the Turkish army, probably killed as many as Singh up to this point of their duel. His rifle was named the Mother of Death. The Turkish soldiers said it gave birth to bullets that destroyed men. Abdul is credited with killing General William Bridges, who was shot in the femoral artery of the right leg while inspecting the lines. He would die of this wound. So, the area at Anzac had two all-star killers lurking around the terrain, unseen, plucking off one human target after the next. And for those that don't know, snipers don't usually work alone. Bless your Carlos Hathcock in Vietnam, but that's a story for another podcast. Snipers usually work in, in teams. They almost always have a spotter with them. In fact, the spotter has the hardest job, and he or she is usually the most experienced. Singh did work in a team and had a spotter with him at Gallipoli. Abdul worked for several weeks seeking out Singh's location, finally finding him at Chatham's post. He did this by inspecting the freshly killed bodies and calculated the angle of the entry point on the body to where the bullets must have been coming from. By this time, Singh knew of Abdul and knew he was now being hunted. After Abdul located Billy, he dug a foxhole where he would climb in before dawn and wait for Singh to show himself. In front of Abdul's foxhole, he set up a metal sniper shield with a hole big enough for his rifle and scope. The two began the hunt. Singh and his spotter were scanning the terrain when Billy noticed an object that wasn't natural. This was the shield. 
He put his sights on it and noticed there was a sniper behind it. He knew this was Abdul. And at this time, Abdul had also spotted Singh, both realizing this was it. It was them two on the, this field of battle and they were in a duel. It was a matter of who would be the fastest on getting their prey in sight and the fastest to squeezing the trigger. Singh put Abdul in his sight, took a quick breath, exhaling out. Abdul put Singh into his sight. One bullet spiraled through the barrel of the rifle, then exited at over 2,000 feet per second until it hit its target. Singh won. He was the fastest on the trigger. He earned his place in the history books. He put a bullet right through the hole of the sniper shield. It entered Abdul's front school and it, and it exploded out the back. The pride of the Turkish army was dead in an instant. His brains were seeping into the soil of Gallipoli. But seeing his spotter didn't just skip away in victory. In fact, they nearly escaped death. After killing Abdul, the Turks spotted their position and sent over a ferocious artillery barrage. They zigzagged their way through the terrain as fast as they could, barely making it to their own trench line. This was a huge morale booster for the Anzac soldiers. Singh was their hero. Billy rained down terror on the Turks at Gallipoli since he arrived until their hasty departure. It's hard to say what actually the kill count was. Some say by August he already had over 100 kills, and some say by October he had over 200. His squadron commander, Major Stephen Midgley, claimed he had close to 300. But here's the interesting thing about this. Billy always had a spotter. He always had somebody there to verify the kill. In fact, to verify a sniper kill, or any kill, somebody has to verify it. He wasn't just out there lone wolf saying these numbers. Others who claimed they documented it were saying these numbers. So the exact count isn't confirmed, but we can easily say he was the deadliest sniper at Gallipoli. Now, this is at Gallipoli. The deadliest sniper for the Great War is credited to, I know I'm going to butcher this and I apologize, Francis Pegamagabo, a native from Canada. Francis is credited with killing 378 Germans. And this I too find interesting because if Billy's count could have been just 300 at Gallipoli, what would it have been by the end of the war? The war wasn't through with Billy. Gallipoli wasn't the end for Singh's military career. He did suffer through a few illnesses and injuries that led him to being hospitalized on a ship, but he was eventually shipped out to England in 1916 after being transferred to the 31st Infantry Battalion. He landed on the Western Front in January of 1917. He was wounded several times, one of them being a bad leg shot, which led him to being shipped over to England to be hospitalized again. By this time, he'd been commended on his actions at the Western Front by several Allied commanders. Clearly, Billy was doing some more killing. While recovering in Scotland, he met a waitress named Elizabeth. They would marry in Edinburgh on, 20, on the 29th of June. Just a little over a month later, after spending time with his new wife, he was shipped back to the Western Front. At this time, he was in poor health from his previous battle wounds, 
plus a gas attack that damaged his lungs. And even though he still led a counter-sniper operation at the Battle of Polygon Wood in September of 1917, he would be awarded the Belgian Cru de Gaulle among his other various medals he earned during the war. Now, in the Great War, soldiers were usually given awards for killing, plain and simple. In November of 1917, he was hospitalized again with complications from his previous leg shot. He would return to the trenches in 1918, but then again was hospitalized after being shot in the back. This, along with his lung problems from a, the previous gas attack, brought his military career to an end. Australian medical records reported Singh had been shot in the shoulder, leg, back, along with being gassed. The lungs seemed to be the worst of his sufferings, which caused him to have a permanent severe cough. The wounds he suffered would be the cause of his departure from the military. And it should be. I mean, Billy Singh was sent through the ringer and came out scathed pretty badly. So Singh was sent home in July of 1918. There's conflicting reports if Elizabeth returned to Australia with Billy after the war. Some believe she never left Scotland with Billy. If she did, she didn't last long because Billy would end up alone. She ended up having a daughter in 1919 and a son in 1924, both by different fathers, neither of which were Billy's. She actually ended up moving to Australia in 1925 with another man, and it's not known whether she was ever in contact with Billy again. Sadly, Singh died alone, in poverty and in poor health in a boarding house in Brisbane on May 19, 1943. He returned from the war a broken man with little to no money in his name, much like Henry Johnson from the Harlem Hellfighters. Commended by Sir Ian Hamilton himself through dispatches, the pride of the Anzacs at Gallipoli, his name was known, his name was feared, served on two fronts, through all he'd done for his country, for the war, in the end, Billy died alone. None of his military medals were ever found. Another tragic ending for a hero of the war. All right, now let's talk Suvla Bay and the landings. We know that the British Ninth Corps was formed for the purpose of this landing. The commander of the Ninth Corps was Lieutenant General Sir Frederick Stopford, who, by the way, had no business being on the battlefield or more importantly, had no business commanding any ground units at Gallipoli. The 9th Corps was made up of six divisions at Gallipoli. The 10th, 11th, 13th, 53rd, 54th, and the 2nd Mounted, in which each division had several brigades, and in each brigade there were several regiments. So at a core level, you're talking some really big numbers. And the only thing larger than a corps was a an army or a field army, such as the Turkish fifth army. Last time United States used a field army was uh, during desert storm. The plan for the ninth Corps at Suvla by general Stopford and Hamilton Reed was to seize the heights at Kirich Tepe and Tecatepe. But overall the commander of the Anzac Corps, general Birdwood's plan for taking Suvla Bay was to have it serve as another command post to support ongoing Anzac operations. 
So overall, here's the plan that General Ian Hamilton approved. The 34th Brigade from the 11th Division was going to land at A Beach. And I'll have a map on my social media of when this releases. They would capture Hill 10 and then send some of their men to secure Kirich Tepe. The 32nd Brigade, also from the 11th Division, would land on B Beach and capture Lala Baba just to its north. They would then continue on an azimuth heading north to join the 34th, where they would both take Hill 10, then march slightly to the east of Salt Lake to attack Chocolate Hill. So if you look at a map, according to the plan, the 32nd Brigade is almost going to make a circle because Chocolate Hill, aside from Lalababa, is their closest objective. But as we know, these plans on paper didn't always work out. The 33rd Brigade would cover the right flank during the entire landing and would provide reserves if needed. Once all of the brigades from the 11th Division were safely ashore, along with its artillery, the landing craft would scoop up the 10th Division and bring them in. And that was the plan. Problem is, the men don't really know what awaits them. Even the officers going into this. Higher-ups refused any sort of reconnaissance leading up to this, so it was really all a guessing game when it came to laying out the plans. Some high-ranking officers disguised themselves as Marines and were boated in to get a closer look prior to the landing. But this did nothing for the men as no solid intelligence was gained. Regardless what awaited them, before the landings, most of the junior officers and NCOs believed they were superior to the Turks, giving them some confidence. They believed what happened at Hellas and Anzac prior to this was a fluke. They believed this was the team that would score the win. And let's all remember, not only is the 9th Corps commander inexperienced with commanding field troops, the majority of the 9th Corps is made up of new recruits. So saying this is the winning team and that the others were flukes, not only is it a tad bit ignorant and maybe a little ballsy, but overall not wise. The 11th Division waved goodbye to Imbros at 19.45 hours on the 6th of August. Imbros is a small Turkish island west of Gallipoli. The 32nd and 33rd Brigades landed onto B Beach with no opposition. The 6th Yorkshires began their assault onto Lalababa. This would be the first official attack made by this new 9th Corps. Just behind the Yorkshires making their way onto the beach was the 6th York and Lancaster Regiment, also from the 32nd. As they approached the shore, they could hear the cracking of bullets in the distance. This was the Yorkshires assaulting forward. By midnight, the 32nd Brigade had taken Lalababa. But the plan starts to take a bump in the road. As planned, the 32nd was supposed to link up with the 34th Brigade to advance onto Hill 10, then Chocolate Hill. But the men heard gunfire in the distance and felt it was better to wait until daylight breaks so they could get a clear picture of the enemy. And the landing of the 34th didn't go so good. The lighters cast it off from the destroyers about a mile from shore. The lighters were on a direct path towards the area identified by the Navy as being the, the place most likely to bottom out on the shoal. For those that don't know what a shoal is, a shoal is a natural submerged ridge, bank, or bar that is covered by sand or other material. The shoal rises from the water. 
So the lighters or other ships would run aground on this. And in between the shoal and the shore, there could be X amount of yards of ocean still to get through. Well, about 100 yards from the shore, this is exactly what happened. They hit the shoal. And by this time, with NCOs and junior officers yelling commands to the men, along with the engines from the lighters and the anchoring of the destroyers, the men from the 34th Brigade were given a warm welcome from the Turks. Heavy fire opened up on them from their right flank, about 300 yards away, along with shrapnel bursting over their heads. They were two miles south of the location that they were supposed to be. This is not how they wanted to start their day. Deep water surrounded the shoal. Considering the amount of weight the men carried from equipment, rifle, ammunition, and more, this could easily drown a good portion of the men if they decided to go over the side of the lighter. Commanders weren't about to take that risk. And now they were taking casualties. Men were getting shot in the lighter. The officers had to make a decision and quick. It was decided that a few of the taller men who happened to be officers would jump in with a rope and swim to shore. From there, the rest would use the rope to assist them getting in. For the situation, this was a solid plan. They basically made a makeshift single line rope bridge. A colonel from the 9th Lancashires and a major and a captain from the Manchesters went over with the rope. Red Rover, Red Rover, send the officers on over. When the three made it to shore, they held the rope as tight as they could for the men in the lighter, and one by one, they started to make their way in. And keep in mind, these men are fresh. This is new to them. They could have talked all they wanted about being the winning team, but this was now the moment. They were now in the fight, and the freshness was starting to show. A sergeant described it, saying the following. The majority of the men were under fire for the first time. It was a nerve-trying moment, and they received that kind of shock that stagnates action. And they simply lay down on the deck, undecided what to do. But a few words from Lieutenant Hart brought them to their senses, and then all made tracks for the sea. Personally, I groped my way through. My soul thought it being to get away from the lighter, being under the impression that they were only firing at the lighter. Sergeant William Taylor, 11th Manchester Regiment, 34th Brigade, 11th Division. Another sergeant went on to say, We had a warm time of it whilst we were on board, and there is very little cover on board these lighters, so we had a lot of our chaps put out of action. I can tell you, I said my prayers more than once. Well, the skipper dived overboard with a rope so that we could have something to assist us to get ashore, as the many great could not swim. I was one of them, so I thought my time had come. We got orders to get ashore, and when I got to the bottom of the gangway, our CO was in the water helping all that came off the boat. He was wounded while he was doing this, but he stuck to his guns like a hero. Lance Sergeant Thomas Dolan, 9th Lancashire Fusilers, 34th Brigade, 11th Division. The point where they ended up on the beach happened to be right below Lalababa. The Turkish fire seemed to be increasing and seemed to be coming from the northern sector of Lalababa. Lieutenant Colonel Wright of the 34th Brigade ordered a company to fix bayonets and deal with the problem, but deal with it in silence. In fact, they were ordered not to fire their rifles at all. Killing had to be done with bayonets only. At first I thought, 
why would you give the men the orders not to shoot and to only use bayonets, but shortly you'll hear why. The men moved as quietly as they could up the slopes. The Turks still seemed to be distracted by the lighters trapped in the bay, which of course was good for their situation. They got to about 30 yards from the enemy trench when the Turks made them out and quickly started firing. The men charged the trench, bayoneting about a dozen, and the rest seemed to flee. The men's blood was pumping. Their adrenaline was going. They wanted to chase after the Turks, but the NCOs and officers swiftly stopped them. And it was good they did. Lala Baba wasn't the objective of the 34th. This was the objective of the 32nd. The 34th just happened to land at the wrong location. Just then, Yorkshires from the 32nd started charging up. A sergeant described it saying the following. It was a blessing that orders had been given previously that not a shot was to be fired. Because the East York's regiment, evidently taking us for a force of Turks, came for us with fixed bayonets. We lined up and prepared to receive the supposed enemy. The mistake was not discovered until they were on top of us. If orders had been given to fire, one shudders to think of what might have happened. Company Quartermaster Sergeant F.L. Eaton, 11th Manchester Regiment, 34th Brigade, 11th Division. A potential disaster was averted. Lala Baba had been secured. As the rest of the companies were gathering themselves on the beach, they started to take artillery fire coming from Ghazi Baba, just east of Suvla Point. The rate of fire started increasing, so naturally they just couldn't sit there. The commander from the Manchester Regiment from the 34th Brigade, Lieutenant Colonel Bashi Wright, rounded up his men to move out towards Kirich Tepe Ridge. As the Manchesters began to ascend the heights of Karakolda, which was the western end of Kirich Tepe Ridge, they began to take heavy bursts of fire. What was believed to have only been two to three Turkish posts turned into several, which were heavily manned. In other words, the place was swarming with Turkish soldiers, and there were snipers dug in everywhere. But remember, the men were ordered not to fire, bayonet kills only. Here's the main reason for that. They didn't want to draw a lot of attention in this area, which was which would bring in Turkish reserves. On top of that, many of their rifles were jammed with sand from the landing. As the early morning started to bring light, this is when the Turkish snipers did what they do best, kill. The most prized kill was an Anzac officer who usually would stand out by his uniform. They were the first to be targeted. Finally, the men had enough of this so-called silence from their rifles. Bayonets would not be the answer to snipers. They needed to return fire. The men quickly field stripped and cleaned their rifles, then began to return the friendly welcome that the Turks so kindly showed them. One of the ways they cleaned out the sand from their bolts of their rifles was to urinate on them. Gotta do what you gotta do. By the time the sun was fully up, the temperature was what you would expect from an August summer at Gallipoli. Very hot. Most of the men had unintentionally swallowed salt water getting ashore, so by this time they were dying of thirst, and now they had the sun beating down on them. By 10 a.m. they made it to Karakul Gap, which was on the western side of Kirich Tepe. Heavy fighting broke out. 
one officer had dropped his machine gun in the sea. And when I first read that, I was like, wait, why is an officer carrying a machine gun? A machine gun is in a team. You got a gunner and ammo bearers or assistant gunners. And normally an officer wouldn't be an actual gunner. I'm thinking he might have actually just stumbled upon this machine gun in the water and figured, hey, we could probably use this. I'm, I'm guessing, but you know, it doesn't even matter. With a miracle, he got the gun back up in working condition just in time to join the fight. Another officer wrote about it, saying the following. Lithaby came up. He told me that he had got the machine gun close behind in working order and asked me what he should do. I told him to try to find cover on top of the hill, to open fire on the Turkish positions, and that I would try to get the man across the gap under the cover of his fire. Lithaby and Sergeant Pickles got the gun to the top, but could find no cover. In spite of this, under heavy fire, they mounted the gun and let off belt after belt into the Turks. I was watching and saw a few Turks get up and run back and hoped more would go. Whether they did or not, it was our only chance, so I ordered the advance. The officers and the whole battalion got up and walked across the gap. This sudden movement seemed to surprise the Turks as they drew back from the crest and I had very few casualties during this advance. Lieutenant Colonel Bashi Wright, 11th Manchester's 34th Brigade, 11th Division. As the Manchesters continued to push up towards the heart of Kirich Tepe, they found the area becoming more and more populated with Turkish soldiers. They eventually got themselves into a position where they were almost surrounded. All they could do now was halt and hold the ground they held, which was about three miles from the beach. They weren't getting anywhere until reinforcements arrived. Nobody was attending to the wounded and at the rate they'd been returning fire, their ammo was depleting quickly. Colonel Wright sent two messengers with letters to headquarters stating their current situation. One runner was delayed after suffering a knee injury and the other didn't make it. A sniper put an end to his life. Again, by this time, the sun was blazing hot. The men were dying of thirst. Some had given up their water rations to cool off the machine guns. Men were actually fainting from exhaustion. Bullets were raining across their heads and artillery was exploding everywhere. The plan was slowly crumbling apart. I don't want to call it a complete soup sandwich yet, but they're definitely dipping it in the sauce. The brigades were being held up and come noon, they were hours behind schedule. Finally, the Irish six Munster Fusiliers from the 10th Division began to land at West Beach. Their CO said they had no clear orders. All they were told was to help anybody you could who needed it most. They were pleaded with to assist the Manchesters who seemed to be in the worst position at Suvla. So this was the course the Munster Fusiliers set off for, but it would take them a few hours to reach their destination. Struggling to climb the steep ridges leading into Kirich Tepe, around 5 p.m. the Irish finally reached their destination to reinforce the Manchesters. You would think they would get there and get the men behind cover, then convene with the Manchesters. No. So they get there 
and they immediately rush into an attack. They actually continue right past the Manchesters and immediately engage in a fight. Apparently, nobody told the Fuselers how bad they were surrounded, or maybe they ignored it. Either way, they immediately started taking some serious losses. Now, the Manchesters are back in the fight just to rescue the Irish. This area was so heavily reinforced by Turkish defenders, coming out of cover to engage the enemy exposed you from front and all sides. You have to wonder why they weren't held up or why they just skipped along past the Manchesters so eager to get to get in this deadly fight. But this is what they did. Again, a lot of these guys, if not the majority, are fresh. They're new to the situation. Well, close to 50 of the Manchesters that were pinned down after losing most of their NCOs and their officers hightailed it into a retreat in a disorganized fashion. Eventually, some of the higher command forced them to go back. What this translates to is they were given an option. Either you get your ass back or we'll shoot you ourselves. I mean, to be honest, where were they going to go? Were they just going to jump back in the bay and swim somewhere? Clearly, they didn't think this through and acted out of impulse from their nerves or fear they were about to die. But order was restored in the men. So here, the Manchesters and the Munsters found themselves in a held-up position, unable to push forward. The Manchesters are beat, practically dying of thirst. They suffered 215 casualties and eventually were relieved by the 5th Inniskilling Fusilers. And obviously, the Manchesters weren't the only regiments from the 34th Brigade. Others were arriving onto the scene, slowly but surely. The 9th Lincolnshire Fusilers being one of them. Their commanding officer, Colonel Harry Wellstead, ordered a group of his men to take Hill 10. The men rushed the objective with bayonets and a sense of urgency, probably because shells were bursting all around them and bullets whizzing by. To their right, as they approached, was a trench line that gave the Turks an enfilading firing position. They opened up the rifles on the 9th Lancashires, and to put a cherry on top of this, there was the artillery fire coming from the valley above. They had to do something because they were just sitting ducks much like how I explained on a previous episode regarding an ambush and your only chances of survival. They had to rush the trench. They were already caught in the fire. This was their only hope. So rushing the trenches is what they did. Even though the casualties were high, they managed to take this trench, which was able to provide them some cover. In fact, this was all it did. The Turkish threat wasn't eliminated, they just managed to score some cover. The men were ordered to fortify their cover and attend to the wounded. Don't show yourself, because if you do, you're dead. More bad news for the 34th. Hill 10, which the men were ordered to take, wasn't even Hill 10. Hill 10 was still another 400 yards further north with the bulk of the Turkish forces. They had been fighting for a sand dune that was occupied by a much smaller sized force. Nobody had located Hill 10 yet. More regiments from the 34th managed to get ashore after some trouble on the water. The 8th Northumberland Fusilers and the 5th Dorsets were being picked up by the lighters for the second wave of assaults. 
When the lighters picked them up and moved them to shore, it bottomed out again. This time, the Navy had to send small towboats to help them land. And by now, snipers are absolutely terrorizing the beach and the lighters. The men from the 8th and 5th are being plucked off, and they hadn't even made it to shore. Needless to say, they're not feeling optimistic about the situation. By the time they made it to shore, there was mass confusion. Regiments were mixed together. There was misinformation. It was a big cluster, you know what. All while, the artillery and bullets are tearing through them, not to mention landmines. You shouldn't compare this to the beach landings at Normandy during the Second World War, but this definitely was an amphibious landing where the men were getting torn up on the beach. Men were desperately looking to find cover, anything to avoid death. Hill 10 was eventually located, but by this time, overall command and control had lost its way. Nobody really knew what was happening or what to do next. And actually, I'm going to end this right here. There's still quite a bit to cover on the Suva landing, so I don't want to go any further. I'll roll this over to the next episode. I do have a movie recommendation. And it took a while for me to watch this because for some reason, I thought I'd already seen it. It's called The War Below, which was released last year. It was directed by J.P. Watts. Really good movie about the tunnelers recruited to mine at Messina, which would lead to the biggest explosion man had ever witnessed up to that point. There's other movies about the miners, which is probably why I got this confused. Beneath Hill 60 is another good one. Anyways, it's, it's a really good movie. I recommend you watch it. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, which has been a strange one, I'll be honest, this is probably the strangest episode I've written just on timelines from when I wrote this to when I finished writing it to the time I'm recording it. I usually am back to back, but um, I was going to comment each time on on what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. So when I started writing this, they hadn't yet invaded then when I finished, they invaded. Now it's the 28th. Now it's been going on for several days. Now nukes are in the talk. I mean, the fact that we're living in that day and age where when things don't go the right way, somebody's immediately just going to start talking about nukes. I mean, that's like our where we're at in life now. You know, you think about how World War One, World War II started, and you look at everything that's going on right now, there's an eerie resemblance to to it all. I mean, are they going to slap this with the title World War III? Is it going to get to that point? I Nobody knows. I mean, what's this going to involve to? What's even the death count right now? I mean, they're saying in the thousands. Is that even accurate? Is it the hundreds? Maybe it's more than we even know about. It's, um, it's one of those things where only time's going to tell, and we're just going to have to sit back and see what happens. But um, yeah. All right, folks. Thank you for supporting the show by listening. You can email me at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook at Over the Top, a Great War Podcast, Instagram at OTTGW Podcast, and Twitter at OTT Podcast. And of course, my website, 
www.ottgwpodcast.com where you can find all my episodes for a low price of free. You fans are the reason this podcast is alive and growing. I'm almost at 50,000 downloads. Let's keep pushing. I believe this year we can get to 100,000. Wishing you all the best. And until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.